Well, Lil was completely right when she talked about the difficulty of revelation with the children. Uh, But I want to say to you this morning that you may be more prepared to understand and read revelation than you may realize. If you've read any of the Old Testament uh, prior uh, to this day, if you've attended any sporting events or even watched college game day, I assure you, you are ready. Because revelation, as we receive it from Jesus Christ, is a curious mixture of two things. Allusion to biblical texts, which for them would be in what we call the Old Testament, and at the same time, allusion to uh, one of the major sporting events of their day in Asia Minor. First, when we come to Revelation 5 today, we see some allusions to biblical texts right away. Uh, We see from Ezekiel 1, uh, the picture of the four living creatures. From Ezekiel 2, an important scroll. From 1 Chronicles 24 and 25, we see elders who have harps uh, that are involved in worship. So we see lots of uh, biblical allusion. But at the same time, there's a lot of sporting illusion here as well. Uh, To set that stage for you, I need to tell you that one of the things that started happening in Rome, uh, actually from Augustus Caesar, was that Roman emperors began to see themselves and think of themselves as God. Uh, But after a while, some of the Roman emperors began to push that uh, divinity, that status of deity, outside of Rome. In fact, they were much more aggressive uh, proclaiming themselves as God outside of Rome than inside of Rome. And so one of the things they would do is they would leave Rome and go to other parts of the empire and roll into a town and announce that they were God. Lord of lords, King of kings, God of gods, they would call themselves. Uh, They would call these events, these coming out parties where you'd roll into town emperor and you'd come out of God. They called them advents, just like our word advent. It means coming. Uh, The emperor who is coming as God. And the emperor that we think was on the throne, likely when Revelation was written, was a man named Domitian. He had more advents than all of his predecessors put together. He had a dozen. He may have had Two dozen. When he'd come over from Rome to Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today, come into a town and proclaim himself God. Now, one of the interesting things about these advents is they were always accompanied by sort of a Pan Am games like are going on uh, today, uh, like a mini Olympics. Not the Olympics itself, but, but a reflection of uh, the Olympics. And that's because Greeks and Romans understood That if you wanted to get your message across, if you wanted to get it into a culture, and if you wanted to sort of uh, take over that culture, you needed to control three things. You needed to control the arts, uh, because that was sort of the social media of the day. Uh, You needed to control the educational system. And so um, uh, emperors had and, and Romans had schools that were built to propagate their gospel. And the third thing was you needed to control the sports venue. And with those three things, you could get your message Across, And so it was when the emperor rolled into town and proclaimed himself God that Advent games went along with them. And the games followed what we know from historians, a fairly predictable pattern. The pattern starts with uh, the emperor rolling into town uh, surrounded by 24 very high officials called elders. 
He would get uh, then to the main stadium of the town. And, and one of the places that we talked about this when we were in Turkey uh, was not even that large a town. It was a place called Aphrodisius. And they have a stadium that even in that day uh, seated 40,000 people and was still used by the people in Turkey up until about two decades ago for sporting uh, events. They'd roll into town. Uh, the first, there would be this procession. Second thing is they would, the emperor would have a herald read a proclamation before the games began. And it went, it usually went something like this. Uh, I, the emperor, and he would describe his divinity who does this, that, or the other. He says, I know your works and your deeds. And this is what I'm happy about. Uh, San Antonio, you have these military bases and, and you support my government or reign. And then he might go on to say, but I have this against you. Uh, you haven't paid all your taxes. Or you have not sent enough people to the military. And then he would read what the problem was. And then the herald would finish. After the herald was finished, there was an acclamation by the people, uh, led by the 24 elders, that said, basically, the emperor is now God. Caesar is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, God of Gods. And they would proclaim him as such. After he had been proclaimed as God, then he could sit in his royal box, and wait for the games to begin. But they would begin first by the emperor making his own speech. And he would unroll a scroll. The scroll would have his seal on it. And uh, the seal would then be broken by the emperor because he's the only one man enough to do it and are powerful enough to do it. He breaks the scroll. He reads uh, a proclamation. And basically the proclamation that he's reading on the scroll is the games are now open. And so as the games were open, one of the first things that happened, just like in our Olympics, there'd be a a parade of athletes and participants. And they'd all walk by the emperor's box in the stadium, and basically they say, we run for your glory and your honor and your power. We run because you are God. We run to worship you. And then after that, they could begin the games. And the games always began with a chariot race. Same four colors of chariots. Same four horsemen, same pattern, and it would start. And after the chariot race, then the other events in this mini Olympics would be announced. They'd be announced typically by trumpet or by setting off uh, the burning of uh, special incense. And that would signal another event uh, had begun. Well, you've probably figured it out by now. that a quick glance of Revelation chapter 2 through 15 basically follows a pattern of the Olympic Games, the mini Olympics, the Pan Am Games, that would have accompanied uh, the claim and the advent of a false god to be the god of the universe. And it seems to be this pattern that Jesus takes to send a very special message to the churches in Asia Minor. It would have been very familiar when they read chapter 5. The people would, they would get what's going on here. This guy claims to be God, but he's not. There's another one who rightfully is God, the Lamb. And they wouldn't have been surprised that there was a scroll that had these seals. Usually they were sealed up with wax from the signet ring of, of the emperor or the high official who sends it. Now that tells you two things. It tells you who it's from, but also tells you what your pay grade has to be to open that thing. And believe me, it's way above all of us in here. Uh, But not anybody, just anybody can open a message from the emperor. So who is able to open a scroll from God, from God's own self? That's the problem. John weeps and cries because there's no one found worthy to break the seals on that scroll. And he weeps. Now, 
as, as Lil said, people debate lots of things of Revelation. And one of the things they debate is why John gets so weepy about this. And, and one of the theories is, well, John wants to see the future, wants to know what's going to happen. And so he's eager for that. But a theory I like better is that John understands that if God has written the scroll, it's just like God speaking. And if God speaks or writes something, it's as good as done. Go back to creation. How is the world created? God says, let there be. Word spoken, word read, done deal. Look at the life of Jesus. Jesus has a man come to him, a Roman centurion. means he's in, he's in charge of 100 Roman soldiers, so he knows how these things operate. He says uh, that his child's ill, and Jesus says, okay, I'll be right there. And he says, no, I know how this works. You don't even have to come. All you have to do, says the centurion, is speak the word, and my child is healed. And John weeps because he wants those words spoken that will reset the whole world back into what is right. It will unveil the vindication of God's people and the plans that God has for all of creation. And so he looks and he waits. And he's told, well, there is a lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse. And you know that one, if you've ever been on a Christmas Eve, we always read Isaiah 9 about the root of Jesse. It's the Messiah. The Messiah is worthy. So he looks for this lion, but instead sees a lamb who's been slain. Now remember Revelation, as we talked about a few weeks ago, is apocalyptic literature. It means it's a little bit like a political cartoon, uh, uses a lot of exhorted, uh, exaggerated symbols, and so it's not unusual for a person to be represented two different ways. So you could be lion and you could also be lamb. Those are two very important messages. But this lamb is slain. But what's interesting is this lamb who's been slain isn't just motionless on an altar. This lamb is standing. This lamb is very much alive. And this lamb has seven horns. And when you look in Daniel or Revelation or even in Psalms, and you come across horns, typically that's a symbol for power. So if you've got seven of something, you've got inexhaustible uh, amount of it. Which means this lamb has got all the power. Seven eyes. Usually that's knowledge. It means this lamb's got all the knowledge. And then it says, which are then the seven, the spirits of God, which go out through all the earth. Which means this lamb can be and is everywhere. Put it in ways that we Westerners would understand it. This lamb is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. He's all-powerful, he knows everything, and he's everywhere. This lamb is ready and willing and able to go into action, to set everything right in this world. And while we wait for that to happen, we don't wait alone. Because according to Revelation 5, we have to wait with John. Who has to wait for this scroll to be opened? But John's not just waiting by himself. John's got these 24 elders around the throne that are waiting. Well, why are they 24 of them? Eh, it could be because the emperor had 24. Um, some guess that the emperor had 24 elders just to remind everybody that he rules every hour of every day. Uh, or it could very well be that these 24 elders represent the 12 tribes, the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament, and then the 12 uh, in the uh, Apostles in the New Testament could stand for the whole people of God, old and new. But they have to wait as well. 
could also stand for the 24 divisions of priests from 1 Chronicles 24-25. I mention this because it's interesting to me. That we find out that while David was king over Israel and Judah, King David, you know, centuries before Jesus, one of the things that he did is he made sure that for 33 years in a row, God was worshipped in the temple 24 hours a day, seven days a week. While David was king, God was being worshipped every single second. And to do that, he had 24 divisions of priests, and he hired 38,000 Levites. So there would be music and singing and worship and prophecy all going on. Just in passing, I would tell you that was King David's full employment plan. The job's plan was get them to worship. Well, who knows exactly who those 24 are, but they're not alone when they wait. Also, these four living creatures are waiting. Now, they seem to be a reflection of Ezekiel 1, but the four living creatures have these four different faces. One has the face of an eagle, according to chapter 4. One has the face of an ox. One has the face of a lion. And one has the face of, of a human being. What's interesting is Jesus would have known what the rabbis taught, which was this. The mightiest of all birds is the eagle. The mightiest of all domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest of all wild animals is the lion. But the mightiest of all creation is the human being. It was a way of saying, if you had the four living creatures around the throne, that all of creation was waiting. All of creation was waiting on God. All the people of God, Old and New Testament, and John himself, and they all wait. They wait for a time when persecution will end. They wait for a time when the sick will be healed. They wait for a time when the hungry will be fed. They wait for a time when the poor will be cared for. They wait for a time when peace and justice will reign. But I tell you all that just to get to this, which is, what do they do while they wait? What does all creation do while they wait? What do the 24 elders do, representing us, do while they wait? What does John do while he waits? I will tell you what they're doing with their time while they wait for the universe to be set right. They worship the Lamb. They worship the Lamb. We're told the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fall down. We're told that the 24 elders, they bow before Him, carry these bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people, and harps. Those are religious uh, worship objects. And then we're told that they sing a new song, Worthy is the Lamb. What they do while they wait is they worship. I tell you that because a few things occur to me. If the Lamb is worshipped in heaven 24-7 all the time, what is it you think that you and I are supposed to do? If he's worshipped in heaven, would he not also be worshipped on earth? Another thing that interests me is if he's worshipped 24 seven in heaven, that he must be worthy of the total and primary allegiance of every person. That means, if I've got it right, this is what it means. It means that my primary allegiance in my life is not due to myself. It's not owed to my family. It's not owed to my university. It's not owed to any political party. It's not owed to the nation. It's not owed to my favorite professional sports team, even if they did make the World Series again. I told the last service, don't tell me there's no God. 
But it's not to any of those. It's to Jesus himself. Another thing, though, this person that we worship, that we believe holds the scroll, that controls our destiny and has all the future in his hand, he's the one who died for us. Isn't it interesting to note that the one who controls my very future died for me and loves me more than I love myself? Why wouldn't I worship? And that leads me to think that maybe I worry more when I worship less. That maybe I fear more when I pray and praise Last, that if I had spent more of my time doing on earth what they do in heaven, I might look at this earth a lot more differently than I do. Because there is a lamb who holds everything in his hands. And he is more powerful than I am. But he's also more loving. Interestingly, very close to the lamb, there are these bowls that are held by the elders, and in them we're told are, is incense, which is the prayers of God's people. Now, one thing you need to understand is um, uh, when you're looking at the New Testament or Old Testament, uh, when they talk about prayers, they often mean worship, worship and prayers. How close to the Lamb is the worship of the Lamb's people? No, no thing that we say or do this morning is ever lost but is held very close to him. And I wonder when it's that close to him, how it might direct, influence, be involved in our future. Reminds me of a story some of you have heard me tell before. It's from uh, Bishop Will Williman. When he was a pastor in South Carolina, he had a friend who was a bishop in the mid-80s who had gone on a, uh, a tour of the Soviet Union to uh, check out um, the churches and how they were doing. And, and it was sort of a PR move by the Soviet Union to say, you know, people can worship if they want uh, 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 during uh, communist rule. And so he went and he went to various churches, most of which were empty, came back. And Willeman said to this bishop, well, what did you think of the church in the Soviet Union? He said, well, I didn't think much of it. It's just a bunch of little old ladies worshiping and praying. And he finished commenting on the matter. Three years later, the Berlin Wall falls down. Three years later, communist Soviet Union, as we had understand it and seen it and experienced it, falls And one of the next tours that goes in finds to their amazement that the home of Pravda, the propaganda arm and peace of the Soviet Union, is now home to a Methodist church. And with all that, three years later, Willeman said he found his friend the bishop, reminded him of all this and said, you know what, bishop, you should be very afraid of little old ladies worshiping And praying. None of our worship is ever lost or wasted on the one who loves us and holds our future.